Hello, my name's Catherine Carr. I'm the podcast producer. Welcome to a festive special edition of Talking Politics. David Runciman was recently invited to give the political quarterly annual lecture on the subject, Nobody Knows Anything, Why Is Politics So Surprising? This episode is a recording of that lecture, in which David gives his thoughts on why so many people, including podcasts like ours, keep calling elections wrong. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. The lecture was recorded in a big old echoey room in London's Bush House. Bear with it, the sound improves a lot after the first 60 seconds. References to Polly and Ed are to Polly Toynbee, who chaired the event, and Ed Miliband, who commented on the lecture afterwards. The recording starts as David outlines the political events, which regular listeners to this podcast will know he didn't see coming. I'm going to focus on the recent surprises the ones that I'm assuming we're all familiar with. We'll find out whether we were all surprised, but I certainly was. The big four, 2017, Trump, Brexit, 2015 in the UK. And I'm also going to touch on the one that came before that, which was the surprise that wasn't the Scottish referendum, which in hindsight now is surprising that it wasn't surprising. But I don't want to assume that politics used to be predictable, and now suddenly become surprising. We've heard that wasn't true. But also, these are the ones that we're familiar with, but they're not the only surprises going on in the world. And they fit a particular pattern that I'm going to come on to in a second. I think we recognise the type of surprise that they are. But there are surprising elections happening everywhere. So just to give a few examples, in September this year, in the same weekend, the German election and the New Zealand election were both, in their own way, pretty astonishing. Angela Merkel underperformed just as uh, extensively as Theresa May underperformed. She ended up polling in the real election about 10 points below the peak of her poll rating just three weeks previously. It confounded not just her expectations, but one of the golden rules of political science, which is that campaigns don't matter. They clearly do. The fact that in the German election, the two main (coughs) political parties of the centre-right and the centre-left barely got over 50% of the vote between them is in itself astonishing. It's taken weeks for the consequences to play out. She still hasn't been able to form a government. What it doesn't have is that gut-punch moment of surprise that the ones that Polly mentioned do have. The same with the New Zealand election. A Labour Party that was moribund, polling at around 25%, chooses a new charismatic young woman leader, Jacinda Ardern. She takes a 25% poll rating into the mid-40s in weeks. Not meant to happen. Then the election happens, and that turns out to be wrong. She underperforms her own polling, which was overperforming her previous polling. She ends up losing the election by eight points, and then three weeks later, she becomes prime minister. That kind of roller coaster of politics is astonishing, but again, there's not that gut-punch moment of surprise in a sequence of surprises. Or in some ways, the biggest surprise of all, the fact that Emmanuel Macron is president of France, is an astonishing fact. 
if you look at it from before it happened, that the finance minister in the most unpopular government in modern French history should, within two years, have reinvented himself ahead of a party that didn't exist, which is a personal movement, and win a landslide election is an amazing thing. But it wasn't surprising in the sense that on the election day of the first round of voting and the second round of voting, what was meant to happen precisely happened. The polls were right. Macron polled exactly the polling that he was supposed to get. If Marine Le Pen had won, that would have been a real surprise. There was nothing surprising on the day, and yet it's one of the most surprising events in recent political history. The four that I'm going to talk about have that common pattern, and I, I'm assuming that everyone in this room shares at least some of this story, that at about three in the morning, in each case, there was a moment, this is, you know, we all experience them in different ways, but I'm assuming at three in the morning we're pretty much all watching TV, and there was a moment where you just thought, wow, did that just happen? And the whole night had a kind of sequence to it. One of the things that makes that run of four surprises so uncanny is that I'm sure I'm not the only one who just thought, as each one repeated, I have lived this before at 10pm. And part of it is an accident of timing because the American election, the polls close earlier there, but we're five hours ahead. So in Britain, you get to experience all of these things through the night. So at 10 or 11 or 12, either with the exit poll or when the early results come in, there's a moment of thinking, oh my God, something really dramatic is happening here. But is it? We need to wait for it to be confirmed. And then there are a couple of hours where people on TV are saying, don't believe the early signs, don't believe the exit polls. And then a couple of results come in that seem to confound the early signs and the exit polls. And then at about one or two or three or four in the morning, there is a moment when you think, my God, that just happened. And then on no sleep, you get up the next day and you live with a world that looks different than it did when you either did or didn't go to bed the night before. And that is not true, I think, of the German or the New Zealand or the French election. It is a particular feature of those four events, and it's clearly partly a function of either first-past-the-post or referendum plebiscitary politics, binary politics. Proportional representation systems, like the German system, produce these kind of slow-burn surprises. It turns out that Angela Merkel can't form a government. That was not obvious the morning after the vote. But in our systems, or following our referendums, the morning after the vote, the world is different. People resign. They resign the next day. The political order is overturned. Those are the surprises that are really astonishing for us. So what I want to do in this lecture is not so much, because I genuinely don't think I'm particularly well qualified, to try and explain what caused these events. I want to talk about why they were so surprising. But also, at the end, I want to get to what seems to me a question which is sometimes avoided, which is, if politics has become more surprising, if democracy has become more surprising, is that a good thing or a bad thing for democracy? I think people often assume an answer to that question. It's not at all obvious to me that there is a clear answer to that question. And actually, I think it can be argued both ways. So that's where I want to get to. That kind of rhythm of those four events, I am sure that there are people in this room who at least once or maybe twice were not surprised. I'm going to give an example. My mother, who's sitting in the front row, told me repeatedly in 2015 that the Conservative Party were going to win a majority after the general election. And I said, no, they're not. 
And then we reached the point where she said, well, can I bet on it, please? <laughs> and I said, OK. And we found uh, that we could get 11 to 2. The regret is that it was only £20. <laughs> There's always something to regret. But that was a winning bet. And I suspect that we all know someone who made money on one of these things. There are always people who saw these things coming and genuinely saw them coming, not just in hindsight, but before the event. But I cannot believe there is anyone in this room who saw all four of those events coming. And I cannot believe there is anyone in this room who at least one of those evenings, in my case it was all four of those evenings, did not have a moment at two or three in the morning where you thought, wow. And you were just thrown off balance, off kilter, by a really dramatic turn up. So I think what's really striking about the last two years, and this probably is different from what preceded it, partly because some of these things didn't exist, earlier on in the, their present form. What I'm going to call the five Ps, the following five groups of people were all wrong. So within these groups, there were people who were right. So there were exceptions that proved the rule. But for all of these as groups, each of these four events was confounding. So politicians, and that includes the winners as well as the losers. I mean, this is partly anecdotal, and Polly may know more about this than me, and Ed would certainly know more about this than me. The people who won these elections, I think in many cases, were just as astonished to have won as the people who lost them were astonished to lose. Pundits, pollsters, political scientists, and prediction markets. All five of those groups were confounded by all four of those results. Now that is quite something. So I'm going to take them in two sets. So the, the middle three pundits, pollsters, and political scientists. In a way, I don't think we should be so surprised that those groups got it wrong. And in this, I'm going to count myself as a pundit and not a political scientist, because I think I probably am more of a pundit than a political scientist. So when I say that pundits are not good at predicting the next thing that's going to happen in politics, that is not a phenomenon, as we've just heard, of the last two years. I think that is a feature of the business. People who write about, commentate on politics for a living are not, on the whole, I think, the people you should look to to decide what's likely to happen next. I don't know if that's a controversial thing to say, but I think it's probably broadly true. But it's also the case that we shouldn't be surprised that pollsters get it wrong, because they've been getting it wrong for a long time. 1992, as we heard, was the standout example from which polling organisations went to have learnt their mistakes. In a way, what's most surprising about that sequence of elections is as the polls consistently got it wrong, the next time we still look to the polls to guide us as to what was going to happen. And of course, it's not true that the polls were always wrong or that all of the polls were wrong. With each of those elections, you can find some polls that called it right. The problem is no one knew which those polls were, including the people who commissioned those polls. So there's more than one example of a polling organisation that commissioned a poll that correctly predicted the outcome of one of those elections. And that poll was then suppressed by that organisation because they were too embarrassed to put it out. So it's no good having a correct prediction of some outcome if you have no idea if it's correct or not. And political scientists as well. I don't think any more actually than pundits. Political scientists are in the prediction business. I don't think that's what the job is. I don't think economists are in the prediction business either. But like economists, political scientists have models that can be used as though they were predictive devices. 
And then it's very hard to resist the temptation for political scientists to use these models as predictors and then to make fools of themselves. It happens all the time, as it does with economists. One version of this, two days after Trump won, by chance, I was at a conference in Germany where a group of German political scientists and the leading group of American political scientists who study American politics were brought together to discuss what was called anxieties of democracy. And I don't think I knew what the word schadenfreude meant <laughs> until I saw a group of German political scientists interact with a group of American political scientists two days after the election of Donald Trump. And each of the American political scientists, and they were overwhelmingly male, did a little mea culpa thing before they made their remarks. How haunted they were two days after the event by how they didn't see it coming, how they hadn't been able to predict it, how they were confident that Hillary would win. And then quite quickly, when they were pressed on this, they said, well, actually, our models did predict it, that actually it was a very predictable outcome, that all of our models say that after a two-term Democratic president <coughs> under these kinds of economic conditions, you should absolutely expect the Republican to win a very close contest, maybe even lose the popular vote and win the Electoral College. Our models precisely predicted this outcome. What we didn't realize was that Donald Trump was the Republican candidate. That is, we didn't realize you could plug Donald Trump into those models and get the correct result, because they all saw Donald Trump as a complete outlier from their models, failing to notice that for many of the people who voted for him, he was just the Republican candidate. So there's no good in having models that are right if you have no idea what you can plug into those models. I think one of the reasons that we shouldn't be surprised is that pundits, pollsters, and political scientists are not well incentivized to be right. That is, it's not the business model, I think, of those businesses to make correct predictions. Clearly, it's good to be right. It's advantageous to be right. I think polling organizations would rather be right than be wrong. But actually, the people who commission polls, just like the people who commission punditry, they're not primarily interested in predictive accuracy. They're interested in a good story. And one of the reasons, I think, that polling organizations seem to survive failing to predict the results of elections is that when the next election comes on, there's still just as much demand for something that can drive a good story. And even in the case of political scientists, so one of these American political scientists at this conference, a guy from Princeton, said not only was he ashamed and humiliated, but that after Trump had won, the day before he'd come to Germany, he'd had to speak to the Politics 101 class in Princeton. And he said, he said to them, I recommend that you all go to the dean and ask for your money back because none of the professors here know what they're talking about. <laughs> and he said it as a joke, but it was a joke because he knew they weren't going to do that. Because that's not, not what drives students to go to the dean and ask for their money back. I mean, to put it bluntly, I think if a professor at Princeton said, I am 100% sure that Donald Trump is going to lose the presidential election and then Trump wins, the students are more or less fine with that. Whereas the person they go to complain to the dean about is the one who says, I think Trump might win, and I think that would be a good thing. That is, the business model is much more driven by the desire to avoid offense, I think, than it is by predictive accuracy. So I'm going to talk about the other two categories, which are the much more interesting ones. Politicians and prediction markets. Because there, the business model precisely is incentivized to get it right, 
because people's jobs depend on it. If you lose as a politician, you haven't just lost esteem among your peers, you've lost. And even more so in the case of prediction markets, the whole point of them, one of the reasons the fashion has been until recently to think that they are the best guides to what's likely to happen, is that real money is at stake and the losers simply lose. So you say what you think will happen, and if you lose, you lose your money. In the case of those four votes, so that the Conservatives would win an overall majority in 2015, which as we know was 11 to 2, um, that Brexit would win the referendum, that Trump would become President of the United States, that the Conservatives would lose their overall majority in 2017. The most uncanny feature that connects those four events, more than the, the overnight experience of ha having to witness them, is that in each case, on the day of the vote, actually in the middle of the afternoon of the vote, so within about six or seven hours of the first indication of what was going to happen, but after many people had already voted, so after many sort of early exit polls, fake exit polls were coming out or rumours were circulating, in each case, the predicted probability on the betting markets, the prediction markets, of the actual result was 15%, roughly. So on every single occasion, within hours of the result, it was thought there was a 15% chance of there being that result and an 85% chance of the Tories not getting an overall majority, or in 2017, the Tories retaining an overall majority. Now, 15% chance things happen all the time. Not all the time, but they happen so 15% of the time. But four 15% chance things in a row, if you do the maths, is a 1 in 2,000 probability. It's 0.05%, which is very, very, very unlikely. Now, you might say that that's a false figure, that's a fake figure, because it treats these events as though they weren't correlated, whereas clearly they are correlated. I mean, the fact that each of them happened in some ways, makes it more likely that the others will happen. Not just because Trump called himself Mr Brexit, but the fact of Brexit is not unrelated, though it's very different, to the fact of Trump. And the fact that British politics was unpredictable in 2015 is not unrelated to the fact it's unpredictable in 2017. So you might argue that you can't treat these things as though they were independent variables and you just multiply them together to get a final figure. But the fact is that... The market said it was a 15% chance in the light of the market's knowledge of the previous events. So Trump was a 15% chance in the markets with the markets knowing about Brexit. So they'd factored Brexit in. And the 2017 election, the fact that the Tories would lose their majority, was a 15% chance with the markets having factored in that you can't trust the polls and they were wrong last time and the time after that and the time after that. So it was a 15% chance even with the knowledge that 15% chances keep happening. So actually, 1 in 2,000 is the right figure for what the prediction markets predicted. So they were spectacularly wrong. And it's not that some people won some money. It's that lots of people lost fortunes on those elections, including in the city. So something needs to be explained here. There was a view, the wisdom of crowds view, that the thing about prediction markets, unlike pundits and pollsters and political scientists, is that prediction markets are broadly neutral. They don't suffer from groupthink because individuals are making independent predictions. So if there is groupthink, it's countered by the groupthink from someone else. 
and they aggregate a range of preferences and give you a neutral take on what the collective wisdom is. And the collective wisdom should be better than the wisdom of any given individual, except in this case it wasn't. It's hard to know what caused that, but I'll give two possible, I mean this is all speculation, but two possible answers. One of which is, there were feedback loops clearly going on within these markets. So by the prediction markets I include people betting in the city, people betting literally with bookmakers. There's a whole range of places in, in which you can trade on the outcome of political events. And the financial markets themselves are in many senses prediction markets, including the currency markets and everything else. There was gambling going on all over the place. But one of the things that the gamblers were doing was they were spending too much time looking at the other prediction markets. And there was a kind of groupthink at work, almost certainly, in each of these cases, that it wasn't a kind of disaggregated, neutral collection of wisdom. It was gamblers watching what other gamblers are doing in the knowledge that prediction markets are meant to be the best guide to the outcome. So some kind of self-referential loop was going on there. The other possibility which has been mooted, and I think it's probably got some truth to it, is that even though you're going to get a very wide range of perspectives in these kinds of markets, because people will come to them from all different directions, the kind of people who are driving these markets, particularly, but not exclusively, in the city of London, aren't a particularly diverse bunch anymore. On one measure in particular, which is that if, as we now have discovered, and I'll come back to this, one of the central divides in contemporary Western democratic life is between people who went to university and people who didn't. So after the event, the best predictor of how someone voted in the Brexit referendum, if you could only ask them one question, do not ask them for their gender, do not ask them for their party affiliation, do not ask them for their class, do not ask them for their income, possibly ask them for their age, but the question that will reveal the most is, did you go to university, or are you currently at university? And the vast majority of people who now work in the city have degrees which would not have been true 20, 30, 40 years ago. It is true now. In fact, it's true of almost every profession. So that if there is this divide in British life, and some of this predicting is going on among a group of people who are only primarily on one side of that divide, and they are watching what each other are doing, you are going to get very bad predictions. Politicians. Something similar, presumably, is going on there. So in this case, I am more confident, and again... We need to see what Ed thinks about something that he won't know so we can ask him. <laughs> I am more confident that though, of course, politicians as a group should represent a diverse, a comparably diverse range of views as that of their constituents. I mean, it's not going to be by any means a one-to-one -one fit, but you are going to get different perspectives among the political class. That's why it's so surprising that the winners as well as the losers were surprised. The people who represent the people who did the surprising thing were surprised by the people who did the surprising thing. But if there is one now gaping gulf between all politicians and at least half of the people they represent, it is that educational divide. So again, this is something new about politics. It is a recent phenomenon that if there is increasingly a kind of 50-50 divide, it's not quite because of generational issues, but let's say broadly. Actually, it's, it's nowhere near 50% of the population who went to university, but it's getting close to that among young age groups. But if there is this kind of binary divide in politics between university-educated and non-university-educated people, politicians are now almost exclusively on one side of that divide. I think roughly 90% of MPs 
have a university degree. But it's not just that. The people who work for them all went to university. Maybe not in their constituencies, but in Westminster, if you go into Portcullis House, you're not going to find many people who don't have a university degree. If you go into the civil service, you're not going to find many people who have a university degree. If you meet the people that the politicians hang out with, not in their constituencies, but in the centres of power, they are going to be hanging out with people on one side of the British political divide. Now, it seems to me it is at least possible that if that divide is driving some of these surprises, we shouldn't be surprised that politicians don't pick up on it. So maybe we could talk about that. But that then leads on to the next big puzzle here, which is, okay, all of these groups have their groupthink, all of these groups have their blind spots, all of these groups have their confirmation biases, and it includes the prediction markets and the politicians as well as the pundits, the pollsters, political scientists. But they should all now have access to vastly more information about voters, thanks to the data and information revolution. There's just so much more information out there than there used to be about what people are thinking, how they're behaving, what they prefer, what they like, what gets a thumbs up. We know so much more about people's preferences and behaviours than even five years ago, including people in these groups. Political scientists have access to vastly more data. Pollsters have access to vastly more data. Politicians have access to vastly more data. People who are betting in prediction markets have access to vastly more data. So why, given they have these biases themselves, why is the volume of information available about how people behave not leading to better predictions? Why is it not countering the biases that are leading to these mistakes? Again, it's not easy to say. These are deep and complicated questions. I can't claim I know the answers. But my guess in this case, is that there are two things going on. One of which is volume of information is not particularly helpful. I mean, the fact that there is more information out there, particularly in a world where there is possibly more groupthink and confirmation bias because of the self-selection of these groups, just being told there's more stuff to trawl through, it's not how much, it's how or what. It's what you look for, what you're sorting. It's the sorting and not the volume. So volume, it's not at all obvious that volume of data would or should lead to better predictions. You can totally see how it might not. And then the other is that this is a two-way process. So it would be a mistake to think that politicians or pollsters or predictors have access to more information about the voters while forgetting that the voters have access to vastly more information, not just about those groups, but about everything. It's a two-way street. So we, or people who belong to those groups, can be better informed if we know how to look about voters. But that doesn't tell us what is informing voters' choices, because voters also now have a vastly broader terrain of information in which to look for the things that will inform their votes. There is much less constraint. And if voters are selecting from this huge array of information what they think is important and political scientists or anyone else are selecting from this huge array of information what they think is important, it seems much more likely that you're going to get a mismatch between filtered perspectives than you're going to get a volume of data or information which makes it clear to both sides what the other side is up to. I think that must, it must be possible that what's going on here is a kind of continuation of this 
sort of battle over an information space where both sides are relatively oblivious to what the other side is doing. And the technology that's driving this is clearly producing huge gulfs of knowledge and understanding between what you might call the two sides of politics, not in terms of left and right or remain and leave, but simply who sees what, who chooses what from this vast landscape. So I'm just going to give you one example, which is from the 2017 general election. And this is from an article in BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed did a really interesting, very well-researched, um, compelling analysis of social media sharing among Labour supporters or people who, who lent Labour, um, potential Labour voters, in the 2017 election. And they concluded from this study that the two biggest news stories for the Labour side of the divide in that election were fox hunting and the ivory trade. So those were the two stories that had vastly the greatest number of shares on Facebook between sympathetically minded people. And we're talking about millions of people and many, many, many millions of shares. So the fox hunting story was that the Tories were planning to overturn the fox hunting ban in their manifesto. And the ivory trade story was that the Tories appeared to have dropped an earlier commitment to push much harder for a ban on the ivory trade. So those were the two dominant stories for many Labour voters on Facebook of the 2017 election. And people who were not showing those stories were completely oblivious to that fact, including me and I'm sure many others in this room. If you were not part of those networks, there is no way you would know that because those were not the two biggest stories on the BBC. They were barely mentioned. The ivory trade was not something that was leading the news night after night. But nor was, frankly, fox hunting. It barely got a mention. They got discussed occasionally in the newspapers, but usually by people who had spotted what was going on on Facebook. So if you got your news from one information universe, you were completely oblivious to what was going on in another information universe. And I think there's then a tendency, we know this now, as people try and explain why is politics so surprising. And they, they come across this fact that, that people are experiencing the information environment in completely different ways. And they're navigating it in completely different ways. There's a tendency from the people who were surprised to want to make that illicit. So to want to say that if my news has nothing in common with your news, then somebody's news must be fake. Because you can't have two completely separate news universes without one of those two being fake. Because news is meant to be shared, right? So, we're told it's fake news. But that wasn't fake news. It was true. I mean, it, wasn't, it wasn't fake news. The Tory had a, Tories had a manifesto commitment to overturn... I think they did. To overturn the um, fox hunting ban. And they had had a previous commitment on the ivory trade, which was just gently dropped. It is true that if you look at these stories, the line between, and on the BuzzFeed article, they, they go through this in real detail, and in, I would say in a very objective way. I mean, I don't think BuzzFeed had a particular stake in this. The line between reporting and commentary and advocacy is completely blurred in these stories. It's absolutely not the case that you get the facts, and then you get a comment on the facts, and then you're told to vote Labour these things just merge into each other. But that's not just on the left, and it's not just in the new media environment that that's going on. Those lines are being blurred everywhere. And that does not make it fake news. 
I mean, blurring those lines may be undesirable in a democratic context, but it doesn't make what's produced a lie. And then there's also a tendency to want to make it instrumental in the sense that I think there is a view that if people are sourcing news which other people are not coming across at all, it must be because that first group of people are having that news forced on them or targeted at them, or to use the buzzword micro-targeted at them by Russians, not exclusively by Russians, but often by Russians. That's clearly part of the Trump narrative. That is, the people who were surprised by Trump's election. It was micro-targeting of voters in Wisconsin by Russian operatives who fed them fake news that appeared on their Facebook feeds. There may have been some of that going on. I suspect there was some of that going on. I have no idea. I can't believe that that's the primary explanation for this sequence of four events. I don't think the Russians fixed our two general elections. I also think it's a really bad explanation for why politics is so surprising. Because basically, if that's the, the primary explanation, what you are saying is that the wicked people lied to the stupid people or to the gullible people. And I think, first of all, that's not true. And secondly, it's not a good way of explaining this phenomenon. I think it is much more likely, rather than people having their information chosen for them and then targeted at them, that people increasingly choose their information for themselves. I mean, that does, of course, open the door to certain kinds of manipulation, but to think that manipulation is driving this phenomenon, I think would be a huge mistake. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So that then raises the bigger question, which is if people are choosing information in order to inform their voting choices, so there's a choice to information and then information informing a choice, what's going on in the second part of that? What is actually driving the choice? And why do people vote the way they do? What are they actually doing in seeking out information that facilitates a particular political act? voting this way or that way. And that, I think, touches on a complicated question. This is the slightly academic bit of this talk in both political science and political theory, which is, for some people, although I don't think for all people, the biggest puzzle of all, which is why do people vote in the first place? What's going on? What, what is the act of voting about? What drives people to do it? Not why do they vote this way or that way? Why do they vote left or right, Brexit, Remain? But why do they vote? And there are lots of answers to that question, but they fall, I think, in broadly two categories. The first is the same word I've just used, so neither of them have very pretty names. So the first is our instrumental explanations, which is basically that in choosing to vote, people are trying to achieve an outcome. They, they, they're trying to help or enable or facilitate something to happen that they want or desire. So a vote is a means to an end, it's an instrument to try and nudge or push or uh, encourage 
some outcome that wouldn't otherwise happen. And then the other explanation is called the expressive theory of voting, which is that when people vote, they're not trying to make something happen, but they're trying to say something about themselves. It's a statement or a signal or a sign. Usually it's assumed to be of identity, that you're trying to say something about how you identify in the world and with the world, where you belong, who you belong to, who you belong with. Almost all explanations of why people vote are somewhere within or between those categories, but they draw on one or the other. The problem is they're both really unconvincing explanations of why people vote. They, they both have famous problems with them. The problem, the famous, celebrated problem with the instrumental theory is that your vote makes not the blindest bit of difference to anything. So if you want something to happen, it will or won't happen regardless of how you vote because no election is ever settled by one vote. So if you're voting in order to make something happen, you're wasting your time. Now, there are lots of ways around that, but they're quite complicated. It's quite hard to find an easy way around that. And it's not a good idea to look for the election that was settled by one vote because you won't find it. You know, a general election that was settled by even a constituency election, after a certain amount of recounting, they just give up. There's never a settled answer. No one knows how many people voted for Donald Trump. No one even knows how many people voted for any given constituency MP. There isn't an answer to that question. You never get down to the last vote. And then the trouble with the expressive theory is that it's a really odd way of expressing yourself. Going into a private polling booth in secret, putting a tick on a box, and then lying about it afterwards <laughs> is a really unusual way of validating your identity in the world. And there are much better ways to do it. And if you want to signal to the world that you're against the ivory trade, voting Labour in the 2017 general election is a really kind of attenuated way of going about it. Just as actually if you want to prevent the ivory trade, voting Labour in the 2017 general election is a very, very wishful way of thinking you're going to make it happen. But it, there aren't other explanations, I don't think. So the truth has to lie somewhere between or within these two unsatisfactory explanations. That's one of the puzzles about voting. There is, I think, a, a, an emerging trend in political science to try and get away from that and to think of it in different terms. Again, not everyone agrees with this, but there is a, a, an increasing view that the way to think about political behaviour in elections is that it is primarily tribal. And if you think of it as tribal, it allows you to make some progress with this sort of instrumental expressive dilemma because there is, in a sense, some point in voting, not in order to achieve a particular outcome, that you individually desire, but to do some kind of good for your tribe. And if it is tribal, there is a point in doing things for the tribe. It's kind of almost what tribalism means, that you do sense that as an individual you have something to contribute, that the tribe needs its individuals to do their bit. And at the same time, you are expressing a kind of identity, and maybe you won't lie about it. And maybe you're only expressing it to yourself. I mean, who is the audience for this expression? It's a form of self-expression. But people often find, and you hear this anecdotally all the time, that they go into the polling booth and they have a real moment with themselves where they thought they were going to do one thing and they do something else. And they find out something about themselves and who they are and so on. So there is something going on there. And tribalism seems to, as a shorthand, to capture some of it, that the trouble with the previous theories is they were too individualistic. They wanted to explain it. You know, it's instrumental for the individual or it's expressive for the individual. But the problem with it being tribal is it doesn't make any progress with the question of why politics is so surprising. 
because it ought to be less surprising if it's tribal. Because then it's not about micro-targeting, and it's not about lots of individuals finding lots of different things online and everyone having their own news universe. It's tribal. So if you can identify the tribes and work out who belongs with which tribe, it ought to be possible, with all of this information, to have a reasonable sense of where the balance of power between the tribes lies. And yet we seem to be terrible at that. We're partly terrible at it because it's really close, and the tribes seem relatively evenly balanced. But it, it also seems to be a puzzle that tribal politics should produce so much uncertainty. And I think there are probably two things going on here. The first of which is, yes, it is true that the way to think about this kind of behaviour is tribal. So the fact that it's tribal seems fairly non-contentious. But what are the tribes? Not just what tribes do we all belong to, but what are the tribes? is much harder to know than it used to be, because clearly some of it is still party. So that was the thing that confounded the political scientists about Trump. They thought that the new tribal politics was the left behinds and that the people who have done okay from globalisation. It turned out that the vast majority of people who voted for Trump voted for Trump because they were Republicans, not because they were left behinds. And indeed, large numbers of them were not the left behinds. And the average income of Trump voters was higher than the average income of Hillary Clinton voters. So party still plays a big role. Party played a strikingly big role in the 2017 general election here. So it's not obvious that tribal politics is party politics, but it's also completely not the case that we've left party politics behind. But then there are clearly these other tribal divisions too. And then there are other divisions, it's not clear whether they're tribal or not. So to give an example of that second category, in the 2017 general election, it looks like age was the biggest indicator of the divide, the central divide in British politics. People aged 40 and under were overwhelmingly more likely to vote Labour. People aged 55 and over were overwhelmingly more likely to vote Conservative. But it's not obvious that age is a tribal divider. Are the young a tribe? Are they a political tribe? Are the old a political tribe? They have shared interests. There may be tribal aspects to it, but it's really hard to know when you find a young person, ah, you found the tribe. And then the one that I keep coming back to, because I think it's the one that's in many ways most important to think about, because it's so clearly significant, is the education divide. Is the education divide tribal or not? So if in the Brexit vote, something to do with going to university made it overwhelmingly more likely that you were in favour of Remain, and something to do with not going to university made it overwhelmingly more likely that you were going to vote leave. Is that tribal? And I think it, some of it is. I think it's particularly tribal on the educated side. So the educated people tend to think it's tribal on the other side. And they tend to say tribal in a not positive sense. But actually, if there's a tribe here, it's probably the educated. And the trouble with it is that the educated are so well educated, they don't recognise that they're a tribe. They think they just know more. They mistake their tribalism for superior knowledge, which is catastrophic in tribal politics. Because if you belong to the other tribe, there is nothing worse than seeing the people on the other side of the divide think that you're the tribe and they're not because they're smarter than you. So if this is the new tribal politics, it is really, really messy and complicated. And then the other thing that I think is true is that it's not just the case that what people are doing in voting is expressing their identity or belonging to a particular tribe. They're not saying, by voting 
Brexit by voting for Trump, by voting for Jeremy Corbyn. I am signalling that I belong to a tribe. I think part of what lies behind it is they're not signalling anything, but they are, in their own minds and maybe in a wider sense, trying to express that they will not have their tribalism taken for granted. That is, they won't have it defined by other people. They won't accept that there are limits to tribalism in politics that are set by others. That many of the conventional signals that have held in politics that say tribalism goes so far, and then past a certain point, something else is meant to take over. Consensus or decency, or an attempt to understand the other side. There seems to me, and I may be wrong about this, there seems to me to be an increasing resistance on all sides to have the other side say where those limits are. And so, in a sense, what people are, I think, partly saying is, I don't have to ask anyone's permission for where the limits of my tribal identity lie. You know, it's, it's for me to decide. I'm going to give two examples of this, and I'm conscious that in giving these two examples, I mean, these are not easy things to talk about, and I'm not in any sense trying to diminish or trivialise the second of these examples in using it. But I do think one of the reasons that both the Trump vote and the Brexit vote shocked so many people was that in both cases it was thought that something had happened that sent a consensual signal that this is the limit of tribalism. And in the Trump case, it was the release of the Access Hollywood tape, the Pussygate tape, as it's sometimes called, which I think there was a, there was a widespread consensus on, on all sides of politics that it was, relatively speaking, abhorrent. I mean, it wasn't that Republicans thought it was great and Democrats thought it was awful, what he said. An overwhelming majority of Republicans thought it was awful, too. I, mean, I think almost everyone thought it was awful. Even Trump, at moments, seemed to think it was awful. <laughs> of course, now he says he didn't say it, but that's a different way. But the difference was, there was then, on one side, a sense, this is where tribalism stops, and a more conventional consensus starts. That man can't be president. This is the signal that that man cannot be president. And a large number of people who found it abhorrent were not willing to accept that. They were not willing to accept that someone else gets to tell them, and this includes large numbers of women who voted for Trump, someone else gets to tell them where their tribalism stops and consensus starts. And by tribalism, I just mean, I don't mean it in any pejorative sense, I just mean their sense of political belonging and identity. The other case, the thing that I think also made Brexit so shocking for so many people, was that the terrible murder of Joe Cox that everybody everybody in the UK thought was an abhorrent act. Everyone who voted Remain, everyone who voted Leave. I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't an event that divided people. That was an event that united people across the political spectrum. But the difference is that it was taken by a large group of people as a signal as the end of you know, Brexit being a realistic option. And there were large numbers of people for whom it was a terrible, abhorrent, criminal act they were not going to be told what limited their ability to decide their political identity. They are not asking permission from someone else as to the limits of their political choices. So I'm going to say two things by way of conclusion, briefly. So just to touch on Scotland then. So the Scottish case is clearly the outlier here because it wasn't surprising. 
Um, and a sort of conventional wisdom emerged after the event that now I think is less persuasive by the day, that what had worked in the Scottish case was Project Fear, that as it were, the signals that there is a limit to what you are permitted to do, I mean, you're permitted to do it, but you would be very stupid to do it because you know, there is a sort of consensus that this would be a bad thing, was drummed into people, it was too dangerous, it was too economically risky, there were economic limits to people's tribalism. And there was a view that that persuaded enough people that actually something that they had flirted with was off bounds. I think that's wrong. Gordon Brown makes this case really compellingly in his new autobiography, the chapter on the Scottish referendum, where he says, if, if Project Fear had been the tactic all the way through, Scotland would have voted for independence. It was the point at which politicians in Westminster made it clear that they were not setting limits and they were willing to listen and they were willing to hear what was coming from the other side. It was, in a sense, Project Listen towards the end of the campaign, not Project Fear. It was the fact that people were not at the end of the campaign being told, you can't do this. At the end of the campaign, they were being told, we hear that you might do this, that made the difference. And the terrible mistake in the Brexit campaign from the government was to think that a Project Fear strategy would work. Because if this is the new politics, it will not work. It will not work. You have to listen. You have to show that you're not setting the limits. You're having your limits set by the people who don't agree with you. Then the last thing, the question I said I would come to at the beginning, and now we're right at the end, and I haven't come to it yet, which is, if, for maybe some of these reasons, I'm not at all convinced that these are all right, obviously, but I think something like this is going on somewhere in this. If, for some of these reasons, politics has become more surprising, you know, it's, it's a shock and we have sleepless nights and we wake up the next morning and we wonder what world it is we're living in. But is that a bad thing? And there is certainly, I think, a strong case for saying it's a good thing. Because there is a case for saying that being surprised is the essence of democratic politics. It's actually the thing that distinguishes democracy from other forms of politics. So there are, of course, bigger surprises than our elections. So the, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, that was a bigger surprise. That sequence of events in 1989. But surprise doesn't really capture it. I mean, that was just an implosion of a political system. That was cosmic. These are surprises. These are upendings of the conventional wisdom. These are persuading these in-groups that have their own group think that the world is not as they see it. Surprises are what make democracy distinctive. There is an even stronger version of this argument which says that the classic origin of democracy is that it's meant to be random. Randomising political decision-making is what makes democracy democracy. That If it is ruled by the people, the point of the people is that there is something random about the ways in which they make decisions. And then the, the classic version of it is you actually institutionalise that by lottery and you make sure that you do randomise even the holders of office as well as some of the decisions that are made. And so that there is something to be said for that we're living through a moment where we're constantly being surprised and put off balance, wrong-footed, discombobulated, politicians, pundits, pollsters, political scientists, prediction markets. It's good for all of these people, all of these groups, to be frequently confounded. I think there is a case to say for that, but I think there are two caveats, and this is where I'll end. My own feeling is that, on balance, it's not a good thing. 
The first is that if it is true that voters are saying we no longer necessarily are waiting for permission signals in making our choices and that we don't recognise some of the barriers that are set institutionally or culturally to where tribalism stops and some other more consensual form of politics starts. If the voters are saying that, I think that's okay and it, and it produces these surprising outcomes. But it's not just the voters who are saying that, it's the politicians who are saying that too. So Donald Trump is also someone who does not seek anyone's permission for deciding what is and isn't within the limits of a kind of tribal politics. And Donald Trump is not the person who is waiting to be surprised. Donald Trump is the randomizer. He is the surpriser. So at the very least, I think you have to accept that if you are going to have the voters in a representative democratic system signaling that they no longer recognize that permission is needed to do the unexpected thing, the politicians are also not going to recognize that. And it's not just Trump. I think that Jeremy Corbyn doesn't think he needs to wait for conventional permission to do the kinds of politics that he believes in. And there is something liberating about that, and there is something terrifying about that, I think. And then related to that, the final point is that if you want to say, in a sort of sweeping academic way, as I just, just have, that, that somewhere in the origins of democratic politics, randomness is the essence of it, and ancient Athenian democracy made random politics its defining feature. The randomness was very constrained by a set of extremely elaborately designed institutions to facilitate it and to limit it. And the randomness was within an institutional framework, but the randomness was not randomizing the institutions. So the randomness was randomizing office holders, having frequent referendum-style events, having the, the public change its mind, the, the demos change its mind. But the demos were not expected to randomize the institutions of democracy. They were supposed to inject randomness into a stable institutional setup. Whereas we are randomizing the institutions of our democracy. I mean, Brexit is not just an introduction of randomness into the British political system to liven it up. Brexit, and indeed I would say the election of Donald Trump, are examples of events whose randomness spills over and randomizes or potentially randomizes the institutional framework that's needed to contain this kind of politics. So you can't, what I'm trying to suggest is there is a, a possible democratic good to being surprised. I think it's good for us, people like us in this room, to be surprised even if it's painful. But the good does not just come as a bonus to democratic politics. This is a randomization or a surprising, fundamentally surprising element introduced into a set of representative democratic institutions that also do require a certain amount of consensus about their underpinnings. And the danger of this is that it doesn't, it is not self-contained. It spills out. It spills out from the voters to the politicians. It spills out from the issues to the institutions by which these issues need to be framed if they're going to be democratically cohesive. And so though there is, I think, something thrilling about this kind of politics, my own sense of it is given the kinds of political institutions that we still require to make our societies function consensually, 
there is also something dangerous about it. Thank you very much to the Political Quarterly, whose website is at politicalquarterly.org.uk. Our website is at talkingpoliticspodcast.com, where soon you'll be able to buy your very own Talking Politics tote bag. Next week, a small but perfectly formed book review from the panel, who will be back very soon in the new year, Talking Politics. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.